The season of Lent is about journeying with Jesus, right? We walk with Jesus to the cross. We walk with him to Easter resurrection. And on that journey, the Psalms, the Psalms that we'll look at in the weeks to come, are a great gift. Because they, they give us scripts, they give us words to express ourselves, to offer ourselves up to God, to Jesus. They give us the words that we wouldn't have on our own to name and express our hearts and what's going on in our lives, in every situation, every emotion. You see, the Psalms are unique in Scripture. All of God's Word speaks to us, but the Psalms in this special way speak for us as well. If at the beginning of this Lenten season you haven't chosen any kind of devotional practice or or jumped into any kind of spiritual discipline, I would commend to you simply the practice of reading, praying the Psalms, even just one a day. A member of our community, David Taylor, has actually recently written a little article you can find online called How to Read the Psalms for All Their Worth. If you need help in that exercise, just Google that and you'll find out about it. The psalm before us this morning that we just prayed, Psalm 51, is traditionally read at the beginning of the Lenten season. And it's among the most famous of all psalms. It's attributed to King David after his adultery and the murder of Uriah had been found out. And the psalm's been described as this poetic expansion of the simple confession, I have sinned. With this basic confession... Our journey in Lent begins. With this basic confession, all our journeys, more generally, begin with Jesus on the way of the cross. As we look at this psalm this morning as a script, as a a tool to help us offer ourselves to the Lord at the beginning of the season, there are really two elements that I think might be particularly helpful for us. First, is the psalm's treatment of sin. There is a brutal seriousness regarding sin in Psalm 51. And second, there is a brazen trust in God's grace. So first, a brutal seriousness about sin. I've mentioned this before, but a number of years ago, right after I was first ordained and older, more experienced priest was teaching me and some others just about some of the practical things of being a priest. And he specifically gave us instruction around receiving and giving confession, something many of us maybe don't have a lot of experience with. And he gave us really three simple instructions for giving confession. And the first of those was this, was be brutal. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't justify or rationalize, explain away. Don't evade. Be unsparing in the account that you give. Not mistakes were made, that classic use of the passive voice to evade responsibility. But give a brutal, unsparing account. There is a brutality to the language of Psalm 51. Twelve times in the first nine verses, the language of sin, misdeed, or transgression, wickedness is used. That word wickedness, wickedness is 
not one that is regularly in our vocabulary, but it carries with it the idea of perversion, something twisted, profoundly disordered. The verbs to wash or cleanse in verse 2 suggest this vigorous and thorough cleansing. The word wash can also mean tread, right? Think of someone thrashing a mattress or scrubbing a stained shirt on a washboard. A necessary deep cleansing of serious dirt. The brutal assessment the psalmist gives extends both to what they've done, their actions, but also to who they are. Their actions. The the phrase blood guilt found in verse 14 relates to a specific action, this murder, right? But the term can also be applied more generally to guilt incurred from any kind of sin, willful trespass, guilt in general. If you've spent any time in Christian circles, you've likely heard the description of sin as missing the mark. It's taken from the world of archery, and it describes the the falling short of God's law as a miss, missing God's intended end, the, the desired target. And there are lots of ways that imagery is helpful, and it is built off of New Testament language for sin. But to the degree that that sense of sin as missing the mark means sin might be minimized, well, it misses the mark. The conception of sin here is not that of a mistake or in any way not a big deal. Part of the brutal picture that emerges here is related to the moral seriousness with which these actions are treated. Sinful acts are characterized here as willful moves out of the good and true with devastating consequence. Think of aiming that bow or that rifle and the millimeters of difference extrapolated over distance can mean hitting the target or missing it all together. This past month, the National Transportation Safety Board issued a report on a series of accidents that took place using the autopilot feature on Tesla vehicles. In one of these accidents, the autopilot of the vehicle, while the driver was hands-free and distracted, narrowly failed to negotiate a curve in the road, such that the car slammed into a concrete barrier just a few feet off the road, going 70 miles an hour. The autopilot system did not recognize the barrier with its sensors, and the driver was fatally injured. In the same way, we might say that vehicle missed the mark, but with ghastly and devastating consequence. The psalmist here speaks of their own actions. They're crushed, they're broken, destroyed. There is a seriousness to sin here. Also, just these past weeks, a celebrated Christian, a man that I have quoted from this pulpit named Jean Vanier, did remarkable things, wrote beautifully about Christian community, was found after his death to have been, for decades, a sexual predator. The man did remarkable good. And yet for this hidden, secret way that he failed to live 
up to the values he espoused, he so wonderfully articulated, his entire life is now the work of it in question. There is an invitation at the beginning of this season to seriously consider the state of our lives, to run from sin, to make no peace with it, to ruthlessly avoid missing the mark. There's a brutality to the language of Psalm 51. There's a brutal seriousness to the treatment of sin. And that language of devastation, the idea of being crushed or broken, it's not uncommon in the Psalms. It's this visceral image that's used for all manner of complaints in all number of places. But what's striking about Psalm 51 is the the cause of this is entirely the psalmist's own self, the predicament of the self. You see, it's not simply the reality of specific actions or transgressions that are identified here. It's not this discrete instance of wrongdoing. Rather, what the psalmist names here is a deeper, congenital even, problem in their very person. They've done wrong and neglected to do right, not as this one-time thing, but as an expression of who they are. From birth, I am sinful, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The problem is not one of behavior that needs to be modified, a minor tweak, but a deeply rooted, seemingly foundational feature of the psalmist's existence. Consider what David has done here. He's exploited his power. He's exerted that over Bathsheba, this woman. He's exploited her. He's violated every vow he'd ever taken, we might say, culminating in the premeditated murder of this man who was loyally in his employ. Think of the will involved in this. Think of the various opportunities there would have been to turn back from this course of action. This is not an occasion of wrongdoing, but the manifestation of something deeply, profoundly wrong. The psalmist acknowledges and owns this reality. This unsparing description, this idea of being sinful from birth is found elsewhere in the psalms too. It's a description given of the wicked, the enemies of God. It's those kind of people, you know, over there, the wicked, born in sin. But here the psalmist with striking clarity names themselves as among such people, marked with the same congenital problem. The season of Lent is what is known as a penitential season. A season of recognizing and turning from our sin. That it's a yearly necessity is a reflection of the truth that the psalmist so unequivocally, so brutally names here. That the wicked, the deplorable ones, the ones ruining it all, are not found out there, but right here in some profound way. And in the words of G.K. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world is me is you, is us. In his remarkably 
personal book simply entitled Sin, Keith Miller, the founding director of Laity Lodge, recounts his own disastrous adultery that ruined his marriage, that came in the midst of this successful religious career. And he names what the psalmist describes here as the sin disease. He describes this fundamental core of self-centeredness that every human person has, that he suggests animated even his public good work and animated this cycle of avoidance, denial, self-medicating that ultimately led to his betrayal. Reflecting on the opening chapters of Genesis, our Old Testament reading, Miller writes, a universal dilemma has plagued men and women from the beginning. There's something broken that cannot be fixed, something wrong that cannot be corrected by all the success, effort, money, pleasure, power, or ability in the world. The problem runs deep. I was put in touch with this fundamental core of self-centeredness in me just yesterday. Relax, I'm not going to get too personal. It's not very dramatic. <laughs> but clergy from the area in our diocese gathered yesterday for several ordinations. And before those ordinations, we had this lunch together, and there was just a time of sharing and catching up, hearing from our bishop. And it's this remarkable group of people many of whom you know, and, and God is doing amazing things at the churches in our diocese in this area, in and through the lives of this group of people. And in addition to being able to celebrate that, recognize that, name it, there in me was this kind of high school insecurity, this petty competitiveness, that nagging question of, well, how do I stack up? What does this say about me? How am I regarded or not? Profound self-centeredness. I didn't act on it in any noticeable way, at least I hope not. Nick can tell you he was there. But it's all right there. That inward bent, that self-centered core, that sin disease, that if given life and nurtured, is my undoing steeped in sin, as one translation of this psalm puts it. Why is the psalmist, David here, able to name this so clearly? Is this just the product of an overly negative self-image, an overly active sense of shame? It seems to me that the severity with which the psalmist describes their own sin arises from the seriousness with which they regard God. In this way, I think the psalmist inhabits a slightly different universe than us. We often conceive of sin or wrongdoing primarily in terms of its horizontal impact. Those actions and inclinations that are sin are those that hurt or exploit our neighbors, that do damage to others. We consider sin in terms of its social or relational outworking. There is certainly validity, truth to this perspective. But Psalm 51 invites us to consider sin primarily in its vertical dimension. 
The worldview behind Psalm 51 conceives of God as the subject to whom we must most seriously and deeply relate our lives. It's to him that we give an account. Our lives unfold before his vision. This is why the psalmist declares, against you only have I sinned. David, as the presumed writer, is not saying that what's been done to Bathsheba and Uriah to the whole community is without significance. But that transgression, even when others are damaged by it, is most fundamentally against God the creator in whose image our neighbors are made, from whom they derive their dignity, their worth. And even when others are not hurt, victimless crimes, secret sins, we are sinning against the one to whom we owe everything, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Part of the heightened nature of Lent And the disciplines commonly taken up during it is is that they cultivate in us this deeper awareness that our lives unfold before the face of God. On Ash Wednesday, we were reminded that dust we are and to dust we shall return. The time that we have, the breath that we have are gifts of God and to whom we give, to him we give an account. You live your days before a holy God that gives weight, a moral seriousness to our lives and actions, a seriousness to sin. It also gives great hope. The final instruction that elderly priest gave us regarding confession, following be brutal and be brief, don't get bogged down in unnecessary detail, was be gone. Don't linger in guilt and shame. Don't seek to atone by punishing yourself, but firm in the conviction of God's grace. Be gone. There's something seemingly cavalier or even brazen about that instruction. While there is this brutal accounting of sin here in Psalm 51, there is also this brazen hope for something new and better. A hope rooted in the character of God and his grace and his power. From the very first verses, the hope of the psalmist is in the unfailing commitment, the compassionate love of God, the expectation, the hope of something new and better. Some of you will know about this substance, but Bondo is this remarkable substance that's used on vehicles. If you get in an accident and the panel is crumpled, but perhaps you don't have the money to replace the panel, Bondo is this miracle kind of substance that is patched over the dented, scarred part, and it kind of solidifies into this grainy, gray material. And you can match the paint close enough and To the uneducated eye, it looks like the real thing restored. But the fact of the matter is, is if you look close enough, you can tell it's got a different texture, and Bondo itself does not last. It doesn't preserve a restored new change. What the psalmist requests here, what God desires to do, the work of grace is something more than what Bondo does. 
The gift is not like the trespass, as we saw. It is more. Notice the psalmist asks both for forgiveness, the, the blotting out, the washing away of what they've done. Regard me as though this has not happened. But also how they request, they call out for the creation of a new and restored heart. This is the full work of God's grace. Not only that our sins would not be held against us, but also that this congenital problem would be undone. The word create used in verse 10, created me a clean heart, is the same word used in Genesis 2 to describe God's act of creation. And it only ever appears as a divine activity in the Bible. Only God can create. The depth of sin in our lives is something that only God can and does undo. Notice, too, the psalmist's brazen petition. There's no bargaining. There's no explanation. There's no effort to account. Bargaining, I'll do this for you so that grace would be given. There's no hiding. There's simply the naked request. A temptation in this season of Lent is to see our engagement, our disciplines, as primary, as most fundamental is making a difference somehow in how God views us, improving our standing with him, atoning for what we've done. The twin gifts of Psalm 51 are that they remind us of the severe depth of the problem of sin in our lives. There is no overcoming this reality by our own efforts. Giving up chocolate for 40 days does not cut it. But they remind us, too, these verses of the capacity, the power of God's grace. That he not only absolves us of our transgression, our inward self-centeredness, through Jesus' death upon the cross, that one righteous act. But also that he, by his renewing spirit, restores and remakes us, is restoring and remaking us. So we can give our broken, sin-riven hearts, troubled, with contrition, knowing that God does not despise such an offering. He's not surprised or opposed. God's desire this season and at all times is not that you would offer this remarkable fast, this incredible discipline. He doesn't delight in it. His desire, rather, is that in your brokenness, recognizing you're crumpled and crushed, you'd lift that sin-stained heart to him, trusting, firm in the conviction of his forgiveness, and confident in his gracious power to renew and restore. This is what it means to take sin seriously that we do unflinchingly acknowledge the reality of who we are, of what we've done, and also that we would brazenly entrust ourselves to God's grace. Anything less does not account for the problem. We must with boldness, 
call upon him for the grace we seek, the grace we need. And for the grace, remarkably, that ultimately leads to the lives we long for. For the work of mission, the teaching of others in verse 13, to true worship, the declaring of praise in verses 14 and 15, to the flourishing of whole communities, the prospering of Zion in verse 18. But the order here is essential. The work, the good work of being righteous begins not with our effort, but with brokenness and contrition. The way of the cross begins with that simple confession. I have sinned. Create in me a clean heart. So this Lent, take sin seriously. Be brutal. Make no peace with it. Be unsparing. And brazenly trust in the grace of God. For by such grace, we and the world are made new. Let's pray. Gracious God, you say in your word that you give your Holy Spirit to convict regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And as your people gathered in your name, even as we anticipate confessing our sins shortly, I ask now that your spirit would convict would guide and direct us lovingly, gently, but surely and with clarity to those things that we have done and ought not to and those things that we have left undone, O Lord. Would you move among us this day and inspire in us this brazen trust in you and what you've done and are doing, O Lord. Move among us. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Would you work in our hearts to make them so? In your name we pray.